0: Despite the critical services our oceans provide, marine species and the world they live in are under threat from overfishing, pollution, habitat loss, and climate change. The time to act is now. The United Nations and partners are already moving forward. Nature-based solutions and innovative technologies are helping the oceans rebound, governments companies and individuals are transitioning away from unsustainable practices. Join us to save life below water for people and planet.
1: The red signs list dates and times for street sweeping every month. Cars parked incorrectly prevent street sweepers from doing their jobs. Help your local street sweeper, and park according to the signs. Avoid fines, help workers, and keep the streets of your city clean.
2: The Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien.
3: The um, Independent Audit Committee meeting to order for our Thursday, September 15th meeting, uh, and I would ask Edie to take the roll.
4: Jack Blumenthal? Here. Lorraine Nath? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Payan? Here. Charles Scheib? Here. Edward Schultz? Here. Tim O'Brien?
3: Here. Uh, Thank you. We have a quorum. The uh, next item is the approval of the August 25th meeting minutes. Uh, the minutes are in order. Is there a motion to approve?
5: So moved. Second.
3: Thank you. Any discussion? All in favor say aye.
5: Aye.
3: aye. Any opposed? Thank you. It um, doesn't appear that Channel 8 is on, so I'm going to continue the meeting uh, anyway, uh, and hopefully the viewers will be able to pick up um, but I will note that all the audit reports for today's meeting can be found at denvergov.org slash audit reports. Reports are listed chronologically. Um, our first item, first report briefing is information technology vendor management. Um, Dawn, would you like to introduce the team and make any comments that you have?
6: Yes, thank you, Auditor and then O'Brien. Paul,
3: I'll ask you to introduce yourself and your team. Okay.
6: Okay, thank you. Um, good, morning, good morning, committee members and guests. Uh, my name is Donna Wiseman, I was the audit uh, director on this engagement. Uh, so just a few words before we get started, uh, just wanna note that vendor management is a critical function uh, within an agency because it helps to ensure that third party vendors are properly managed from the start of the relationship to the end of the relationship. Um, it allows an organization to monitor and manage vendors in areas like cost control, service delivery, and security vulnerabilities. We started this audit project with the understanding uh, that technology services had intentionally delayed completing their 2021 vendor management policies, procedures, and processes so that they could leverage our audit recommendations when finalizing their vendor management program. Um, The information systems audit team that worked on this engagement was Jared Miller, the audit manager. We have, uh, to my left is Nick Jim the lead auditor in Beside Nick is Dave Hancock and Rob Farrell, our senior auditors on the engagement. So with that, I will pass it um, to Paul Paul to introduce his team.
7: Good morning, Auditor Brian. Audit Committee members. My name is Paul Kresser, and as of this uh, past Monday, I am the new Deputy Chief Information Officer <laughs> in Technology Services. So right. please go easy on me. <laughs> um, to my right is Tara Segura. She's the city's data protection officer. And just before, if I may, Auditor O'Brien, just before um, we jump in, I want to take the opportunity to thank this committee, to thank the audit team we worked with. I do, um, you mentioned him, Don, but Jared was a uh, longtime auditor. Uh, auditor office employee who we had the opportunity to work with on several audits and he will be missed I know he moved on actually to join the dark side right right a, yes we miss yeah, the him cyber too. team but um, yeah I just wanted to give a little recognition to him and your whole team um, this was an audit that we in technology services had looked forward to actually for, for many years I think we put it on the calendar um, because we recognized that there was an opportunity to improve our processes here and to get better so I I feel that recommendations Within this audit, certainly lead us in that direction. You had mentioned we had intentionally delayed adopting the policy we had drafted. I'm pleased to say that policy has been adopted as of last week, so it is now published um, on Denver Hub and is applicable uh, across the city and county of Denver. And we look forward to developing the standards and the processes um, that will be associated with it. And I'm sure that we're going to talk about this morning. Thank you.
3: sure uh, we continue?
8: Yes. All right, well, thank you. Um, Before we get into the audit, um, we would like to thank Technology Services for being transparent and cooperative to our requests. Uh, Your team was very helpful in fulfilling our requests, directing us to the appropriate contacts, and provisioning provisioning us access. So, thank you. Uh, Beginning on page one of the report, vendor management is a process involving the selection of vendors, management of vendor relationships, and contracts and reviewing and monitoring vendor performance and compliance. The popularity of hybrid and remote work has helped fuel organizations investments in third-party vendors. Globally, spending on such services is forecasted to grow by over 20% this year. As shown on page one in figure one, the vendor management process starts with the city determining what technology solutions they need. Vendors are selected through an intake process that verifies various components of the technology being requested. The life cycle encompasses the entire life of the service being performed by the vendor. This includes the request for proposal phases, intake, going under contract, project management, continuous monitoring of the contract, as well as terminations. Continuing on to page five, monitoring each vendor involves different functions in technology services including security and contract monitors. Technology services can monitor vendor performance through a service level agreement, which is a contractual agreement that is signed by both parties, the city and the vendor. Maintaining these contracts and managing the vendors are critical to the operability of the city and the systems. Without proper vendor management, the city could experience downtime, loss of data, or even a security breach. Technology services is the lead agency for information technology and provides all related IT and IT related infrastructure and services to most city agencies. The city's executive order 18 grants technology services, the authority to oversee these various vendors, systems, and services. An update to the executive order in 2021 specifically increased technology services ability to manage and monitor technology across the city, including software, hardware, and cloud services connecting to the city's network. Several of these systems are managed and administered administered by technology services, but other systems are managed by various vendors that specialize in, in these administrative services. On page four, we explain how the technology services agency developed a draft vendor management policy in 2021 that establishes the agency's formal governance over vendors, that have access to all the data, hardware, and software. Although still pending approval, this draft includes a handful of roles and responsibilities related to vendor management, including the chief information officer, executive leadership, business unit, and the vendor manager. The objective of our audit was to assess the effectiveness of technology services process for vendor management, governance, continuous monitoring, and compliance with agency policies and procedures and applicable regulations. To arrive at the current scope, the teams focused on the areas of risk we identified during planning. This included the business applications managed by technology services and vendors. We renewed, te- we reviewed technology services, data, processes, and future planning efforts from January 1st, 2021 through May 31, 2022. Original scope elements that were not included were the vendor intake phase, hardware such as servers, routers, switches, Internet of Things, software licensing, and access controls. Before turning the presentation over to Dave and Rob to discuss our findings and recommendations, I'd like to open the floor to to the agency and committee to questions. Any questions?
3: Let's
8: continue.
9: Thank you, Nick. Starting on page seven of the report, the finding is titled technology services does not systematically manage its technology vendors. We found the city's technology services agency does not have an effective vendor management process to oversee and adequately monitor its information technology vendors. This includes several elements of a vendor management process that we will cover during this presentation. First, technology services lacks a defined strategy and an effective action plan for vendor management. We can see the effects of a lack of strategy and action plan through technology services lack of a comprehensive governance structure and inadequate oversight of its vendors. By not having this governance and oversight, the agency is exposed to several risks, including the agency does not effectively monitor outside vendors for the services provided. It also does not attempt to hold vendors accountable for not complying with contract terms. It is not monitoring when vendors stop working for the city or communicating the end date. Also, vendor data is not stored in a central location. If technology services cannot hold its vendors accountable, security vulnerabilities may go unnoticed. Vendors may not provide services as contractually required and city data could be lost. Our first sub finding on page eight is that technology services has an incomplete strategy and no action plan to implement vendor management. We interviewed technology services managers and staff and reviewed available strategic plans, policies, procedures, and other documents. We learned technology services has an incomplete strategy, an incomplete policy and procedure, No defined roles and responsibilities, no staffing or budget plan, and no training or presentation materials. As we describe on page eight, technology services strategic plans lack important elements to act on vendor management. We reviewed technology services strategic plans for the last few years and found that its 2020 plan included very little information about vendor management. The plans for 2021 and 2022 spoke about maturing vendor management, but without much detail, we found Denver's technology services agency has not developed strategies for a comprehensive vendor management process. Leading practices recommend these types of strategies and one of our benchmark cities has used them. For example, we learned that the city and county of San Francisco's information technology plan includes strategies for (coughs) monitoring vendors, contract compliance, securing data and network infrastructure, training city staff, engaging with vendors and partners, and specific timelines, among others. Technology Services Plan for 2021 calls for a deliberative process for consistent review of technology, but the agency fell short of implementing this goal. Without key strategies specific to the vendor management process, Technology Services lacks the details of an action plan to implement them. In addition, on pages nine and 10, we also found that technology services does not have an approved or comprehensive policy and procedure for vendor management. The agency began a project in January 2021 to rewrite its existing policies for developing 16 new policies for the city's technology infrastructure based on a framework from the nonprofit Center for Internet Security. Of those 16 policies, The vendor management policy is one of two that were not yet finalized. Instead, technology services officials intentionally waited for us to complete the audit so that they could leverage recommendations and incorporate our feedback before approving the draft policy. They also have not created the procedures that are referenced in the policy. On page 10, technology services also outlined proposed roles and responsibilities in their draft vendor management policy. However, because the policy is still in draft form, the agency has not yet approved and implemented those roles or designated a leadership authority to coordinate the vendor management process. It also has not communicated these proposed responsibilities to affected staff. The draft policy is vague and says a vendor management committee and other associated city agencies could take the leadership role. When we spoke with other cities and states, we learned about their structure For example, in the city and county of San Francisco, the city created a seven-member team that manages the entire information technology vendor management process. This team reports to the city's chief information officer by way of the chief financial officer. In Washington State, an executive steering committee makes decisions on information technology vendor management. Not establishing authority over the process can lead to a lack of vendor accountability or inconsistencies in how processes are performed. On page 11, the agency also does not have a staffing or budget plan for vendor management. To examine the structure of technology services, we found fragmented processes, lack of collaboration, and limited information sharing and coordination. Lastly, continued on page 11, the agency does not have a training and communications plan (coughs) Specifically for the vendor management lifecycle. Federal guidance <coughs> says a successful training plan would consist of details from defined policy and procedure, communicate roles and responsibilities for users, and establish expectations for monitoring and review. The lack of urgency on developing these important governance items exposes the city to risks, including not effectively monitoring outside vendors, not holding vendors accountable for breaking contract terms and not monitoring for and communicating with vendors when they stop working for the city. We have four recommendations related to this part of the report. Starting on page 12, we will read all four and then we'll open the floor to questions and comments from the agency and audit committee. First on page 12 recommendation 1.1, the city's technology services agency should perform a staffing analysis to determine budget and staffing needs for the vendor management process. Based on this staffing analysis, the Chief Information Officer should establish the staffing plan and designate an organizational structure with a designated authority for the vendor management team. The Chief Information Officer should then document this structure in an approved vendor management policy. The agency agrees with this recommendation, implementation by March 14, 2023. Next, continued on page 12, recommendation 1.2. The city's technology services agency should refine its strategic plan to include sufficient detail about how it will plan the vendor management process, including performance indicators for monitoring vendors, contract compliance, securing data and network infrastructure, training city staff, engaging proactively with vendors and partners, improving how it selects and contracts with critical vendors to save taxpayer money monitoring other city agencies compliance with technology plans, budgets, standards, and policies and procedures. Each objective should have a measurable timeline. The agency agrees with this recommendation, implementation by March 14, 2023. Recommendation 1.3 on page 13, the city's technology services agency should refine its draft vendor management policy with more detail about the organizational structure how it will communicate staff's roles and responsibilities, and how it will train staff. In addition, technology services should create all needed procedures that will be referenced in the policy, including but not limited to procedures described in recommendations 1.5, 1.6, and 1.7. Once the agency completes these procedures, the chief information officer should approve the revised vendor management policy as soon as possible. The agency agrees with this recommendation implementation by March 14th, 2023. And lastly, on page 13, recommendation 1.4, the City's technology services agency should develop a training plan to ensure staff with roles and responsibilities for information technology vendor management are aware and informed of how the process is structured and how it should operate. The agency also agrees with this recommendation, implementation by March 14, 2023. We'll now open the floor to questions and comments from the committee and from the agency.
3: So Paul, I'm delighted that you agree with the recommendations. You've got a lot to do between now and March 23rd. Um, Any comments that you want to make on these four?
7: Uh, Sure, Auditor O'Brien. First, as um, I said in my opening, we we recognize going into this that there was some improvement we could make. I think these four recommendations, um, while not surprising, I think you know certainly will go a long way to improving our vendor management practices. As you mentioned, Otter, there is going to be a lot of work to do. But as I already stated, we're well underway. We adopted the policy last week um, at our. Internal TS directors meeting yesterday we presented the policy again and set expectations with our directors and we're starting the communication around these processes or the processes um, and standards to come and that work will begin imminently so yes we agree with these four recommendations We right take steps to implement them by that March date um, and I'll just also know we we actually agreed with all eight of the recommendations in this audit if, if that's any indication that we are eager um, to improve these practices so the city is
3: in process as far as the budget goes for 2023 are are your needs reflected in your budget request
7: in the, in our narrative response um, while the, the budget has closed for this year's cycle there were obviously will be opportunities in subsequent budget years what we agreed to in the recommendation is a assessment of our existing resources there may be opportunity for reallocation at a minimum there we will reinforce the expectations of those who are supposed to be doing vendor management or have vendor management responsibilities in the department as of now to make it clear. And that, of course, is going to be um, supported by the training plans and other resources that were recommended in
5: the audit. Rudy? I have uh, three quick questions just to give me more background as well as our our viewing public. I'd like to know the number of vendor, vendor vendors, more or less, dollar amount, more or less, and finally, when I was reading the report, you went from nine to five staff members. Are you currently at five staff members? And if so, is that sufficient to implement the recommendations that have been made? So the first one is the number of vendors, dollar amount, and then staff, staffing levels.
7: So let me speak to our definition of vendor in in the policy we just draft we just adopted last week we define what type of vendors are going to be applicable to the vendor management policy and we're following NIST standards in that respect as far as are they performing a a mission critical function for the city are they do they handle our sensitive protected or otherwise or regulated data so we are defining the the vendor population that this policy will apply to Um, you know i i'm Reluctant to give you a, n- a number off uh, right now, as far as the, the actual, but it, it, it would it is going to be substantial. Um, the dollar, your second question, second concerned question is the dollar amount. Yeah. yeah that, I, again, I apologize. I don't want to share. Yeah.
5: And lastly, what about the staffing level? Is it do you believe it's at appropriate level at this point, or do we have to increase it?
7: If I may ask the audit team the, the numbers, the staffing numbers, the nine staffing numbers, where, where did that
5: come from? I believe I read in the report it went from nine to five and we're at five at this point, or? <coughs> I, I'm just keep trying to get some clarification. That's uh,
7: maybe, maybe it would be helpful if I explain. We do not currently have, and that's part of why there was the recommendation, we do not currently have a formal vendor management team in technology services. We have employees performing vendor management functions across multiple teams, say on the security team, on our procurement team. Directors in TS perform a vendor management function, but it is not consolidated on a single team in a single management structure.
5: Thank you, Paul.
8: But we did note on other uh, benchmark cities like San Francisco, they do have a five, seven member team um, dedicated for uh, vendor management
5: was conflating yeah that
3: was I'm sorry okay. so technology services has a couple
5: hundred staff is that
3: uh,
7: over 300 yes that's what I
3: thought yeah okay all right should we continue
10: thank you auditor on page 13 conditions present during the audit include technology services does not consistently review vendors for existing security controls During a judgmental and random sample of vendors and related business applications, we found that the agency did not have or did not keep documentation or evidence of security reviews for initial intake evaluations for 65% of the vendors. A further 88% of vendors did not evidence an annual review or provide documentation on why an annual review was not necessary. One completed review included an outdated independent service organization's controls report. Security reviews and vendor risk assessments are completed by organizations to help ensure the vendor's environment is compatible with the city's infrastructure, and the vendor's systems and products are protecting the city's network and data. These conditions exist because the agency has not had a consistent review process for many of the vendors in our sample, resulting from not having formalized a written policy and procedure to guide employees tasked with these reviews. Federal government best practice for the General Accounting Office says formal policy allows organizations to have a better organizational control. When an organization does not consistently conduct security reviews at intake or periodically and or uses outdated independent assessment reports, the organization may not be aware of deficiencies at its vendors which may result in loss of data and harming the agency's and city's reputation. Therefore, on page 15, Recommendation 1.5 recommends that as part of implementing Recommendation 1.3, the technology services develop and implement security review procedures to ensure staff comprehensively and continuously monitor all information and technology vendors for security concerns. These procedures should include at a minimum security reviews at intake and on a regular basis thereafter at least once a year, documentation for why a vendor is is excluded from annual security reviews, and using current independent security assessments. The agency has agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of March 2023, and I'd like to open it up to committee questions and agency comments.
3: Paul, any comments? Mm -hmm.
10: Uh, sure, just brief comments. We, we absolutely
7: agree with um, this recommendation. I'll just make note of the of the sample that was taken. I know it was um, a random sample, but a lot, the majority of the vendors that were looked at predated the establishment of our vendor risk assessment process, uh, and hence why um, the, the figures that were shared, that many vendor risk assessments weren't done on that vendors. That is no longer the case. Vendor risk assessments are done um, during for all vendors at the intake stage. And then just a clarification in our, how we will implement this recommendation. Certainly the need for subsequent security reviews is important. Uh, it will be tough for us to commit to an annual review for every single CA technology, vendor rather we will apply a risk assessment to ensure that those vendors that are providing the most critical services handling the most critical data will of course have an annual um, security review but others that may not meet that level of criteria it may not be as frequent just wanted to clarify we'll that be able
10: to document and that,
7: that, that will be documented be in, the, in the standard associated with the policy yeah.
5: I just want to go a little deeper <coughs> on what you just said. So what you're going to do,
3: basically, is have several tiers of vendors. Um, but are you planning, you know, some of them may be reviewed annually, uh, but are, are you going to have periodic vendor reviews for everybody? That is, some are going to be annual, some may be. Is, is that the structure you're thinking of? So
5: that everybody gets covered, and in beyond the intake Correct.
11: period, yes. fair enough. I, I just want just want to clarify that. I should Thank also you.
7: make note that we do have a um, in our contractual language expectations that vendors provide us their annual SOC reports as well. I didn't think so, yeah. so <laughs> well,
12: everybody provides you with a SOC i mean everybody yeah. that's critical yeah but there, it, if you got
3: a
11: lot of sock reports it takes a lot of work to go through those
12: yeah but you can see if it's good or bad well
11: no they don't
5: <laughs> they don't say good or bad they just describe it that's the problem
3: is there a sock
7: report for Kronos? <laughs> <laughs> Um Yes, there, there were SOC reports for Coronas previously. The, the, I was actually just speaking with our account team. Um, after an incident occurs, generally, I think the practice is they have to wait six months before they can reissue their SOC report. So we would be expecting that um, pretty, pretty soon. Oh, and so, I,
12: but SOC, does SOC refer to, or does it evaluate um, effectiveness or just security?
7: Here, would you like to? Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's primarily well. There's two types of SAC reports: oh. the SAC one, and SAC two reports. The SAC two reports, which we receive um, generally
8: or around the security controls. Okay. As um, yes, yeah, Paul mentioned, there's two SOC reports: there's a SOC uh, one, SOC two security security operations control report. Um, one is for security; the other one's more Financial based, so it just depends on the uh, vendor and what what they do and what and what they're looking for. So, yeah.
13: Also, add that in regards to Kronos, um, considering the breach that occurred, we have initiated a vendor risk assessment with them to follow up as we're creating the new criteria for the annual monitoring.
10: Hey, okay. should we continue? Thank you auditor on page 15 conditions present during the audit include that technology services does not hold vendors accountable for meeting contract requirements <coughs> resulting from missing and unclear service level objectives in service level agreements uh, within the vendor contracts and a lack of monitoring for contract provision violations and requesting remediation for breaches and service levels. of the contracts reviewed did not have a service-level agreement attached, 65% did not have service-level objectives agreed in the contract or the service-level agreement, and 27% did not have clearly defined objectives. Technology Services has substantial incident response and management, but repeated critical incidents are not pushed up against the contract terms. Additionally, Technology Services has not developed and formalized its problem management procedures to include checking critical incidents against contract service level objectives. 31% of the vendors tested had critical incidents and none included an attempt to collect restitution for disruption in services. Only one case was noted where the vendor self-reported and provided some restitution for lost time. The information systems audit and control association cites that service level agreements and objectives in all vendor agreements is best practice. Vendors may regularly underperform and unavailable websites and services impact city employees and the public alike. Therefore on page 17 recommendation 1.6 recommends that technology services develop and approve performance monitoring procedures while implementing recommendation 1.3. This should include populating ServiceNow with the service level objectives, developing and incorporating procedures to ensure staff are comprehensively and continuously monitoring all vendors to verify they are meeting contract terms and the requirements of their service level agreements, including procedure steps to ensure contracts, contain service level agreements and service level objectives, and that these objectives are relevant, enforceable, and measurable, as well as defining and implementing a process for seeking restitution when vendors break agreed upon performance objectives. The agency has agreed with the recommendation and will implement by December of 2022. I'd like to open it up again to the committee and agency comments. Paul? yes Uh,
7: so again we agree with this recommendation I'm pleased to say while we did postpone the adoption of the policy uh, it didn't prohibit us from taking other steps over the past or during the term of the audit to improve our processes one of which was working with the city attorney's office to come up with standardized language and a template that we can use in our um, contracting with vendors and that includes very clear, um, definable uh, service level objectives and uh, the restitution um, process associated with it.
3: So have any vendors pushed back on that new language?
7: I, I, was, I dealt with one that did, um, but in the end they uh, agreed to our terms. So you
3: only had one pushback?
7: One that I had, I was working with personally. I can't speak for.
3: Well, well there's an audit clause in the contracts too, and I regularly uh, get feedback from vendors about the audit clause, and we push back too. So now on, I'll ask if they've agreed to your clause before. <laughs>
10: create the audit clause.
3: Should we continue?
10: Thank you, auditor. On page 17, our next subfinding is that technology services does not have a consistent process when vendors stop working for the city as it has not documented its vendor separation process, including communication to all technology services and agency stakeholders, and does not maintain a database of which, end, of which vendors have separated from the city. During the audit there was at least one incident where the security team asked a vendor for an updated security assessment after the vendor stopped providing services to the city. The U.S. Government Accountability Office advises that management of any organization appropriately inform staff to enable their staff to perform their duties and achieve the objectives of the organization. For vendor separation, the process should include communication to all relevant stakeholders, removing a a vendor's city network access and ensuring that the system of record now is updated to reflect the end of the relationship. Some effects for not separating properly are that the vendor may, may maintain unneeded access to city networks, which can be exploited. Also, city data may not be destroyed or returned in accordance with the contract terms. If data is lost or damaged, the city's reputation may also be harmed. Therefore, on page 19, Recommendation 1.7 recommends that technology services develop and approve a vendor separation procedures as part of implementing recommendation 1.3 for when vendors separate from the city and then management should communicate these procedures to the relevant staff. The agency agreed with the implementation date of November, 2022 and the light to open up to the committee and agency for comments. Paul?
7: Yes, again, we agree with this recommendation, Rob. Um, explain the risk of allowing or not following this process uh, and granting vendors access to our network and potentially our data past the point of separation uh, I can say we have all the technology tools in place um, to enforce that separation but as the recommendation points out it's the communication that couldn't be improved so within our new policy um, specifically calls out one of the responsibilities for the, the vendor manager Somebody serving in the vendor manager role is to come up with the communication plan that includes um, notification or how the notification upon separation will work.
3: Thank you. Any other questions?
10: Rob? And finally, thank you, auditor. Uh, technology services stores vendor management data access across multiple systems. The National Institute of Standards and Technology advises technology organizations maintain all data in a central location as part of an effective vendor management process. In benchmarking with the City and County of San Francisco, we understand that their their adopted all-in-one solution resulted in cost savings and efficient vendor performance. Denver maintains vendor information across multiple systems, and if it were to expand and centralize it into an its current apparent system of record service now, the city could have a comprehensive and complete inventory of technology assets, vendors, contracts, licenses, certificates of insurance, and documented key vendor performance goals. Additionally, centralizing and consistently updating and checking for accuracy would eliminate missing information such as key content owners or vendor managers during our vendor testing we noted 38% of the vendors listed former city employees ex- as key individuals technology services staff would like a centralized accurate system of record for essential and successful vendor management therefore on page 20 we recommend in recommendation 1.8 that technology services implement a single system of record for vendor management, such as ServiceNow, for vendor management data and monitoring activities. Once technology services establishes a single system of record, it should create a process for reviewing the vendor management related data to ensure its accuracy. Again, the agency has agreed with the implementation date of September 2023 this ends our presentation on the IT vendor management, and now I'd like to open it up to the committee and agency for comments. Paul? Uh,
7: yes, I, again, we, we agree we would ideally like to have all of our vendor management activities within a single system of record. We're assessing the feasibility of that within our ServiceNow platform, um, and, and hopefully we can reach the conclusion that will be possible.
12: Lauren? all um, city uh, employees with IT functions or duties report through information technology or do agencies have their own yep. IT folks
7: yeah I can um, speak to that so actually in the past year or two we've done a we've actually had a program we call it TSR technology security reliability program which is incorporating some of the IT employees that had previously worked in other departments into technology services. So employees that hold an IT classification um, are now, have, in many instances, were moved into technology services. So we, so our. So,
12: so there's a migration to a centralization.
7: Correct. Now that's not for all the agencies. The airport, for instance, maintains their own separate IT, as as do some of. Um, some of the quasi or independently elected agencies as well.
12: So, within that, I would imagine that prior to that, there was more, it was more likely that agencies would have their own vendor agreements. Correct. And you would not necessarily even know about them.
7: Yep, 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 well, yes. (laughs) And actually, I'll point to some of the, some of the vendors that were listed in the report, those that predated, you know, 2020, a lot of those contracts were executed and negotiated by agencies other than TS. So um, we we did not have; uh, they obviously did not go through any of our processes because they were not executed by us.
12: So other than the the uh, elected officials, agencies, and and DEN, is everybody on board? Uh, to consolidate that information?
7: Yes, yeah. so from a, so and that, so our policy speaks directly. That That's why um, the, the policy creates a committee chaired by the CIO or his delegate, um, and that has representation from the various business units.
12: Okay. Well, we'll see if, they, mm-hmm. if that works. <laughs>
7: Other? I, I should note the budget department, the administration has been very supportive in helping us consolidate actually the dollars and, and these resources associated with some of the IT that exists in the agencies into TS this past year. Um, well, that concludes the briefing. Paul, I
3: want to thank you and technology services and Tara. Um, I think we've got a great relationship with your office and my office, and I think it's getting... Denver to a better place, and that's uh, great. And I look forward to continuing
7: the relationship with you Likewise. in your new role. So. <laughs> Thank you, Auditor Brian. I appreciate it. We enjoy working with you as well. Right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. So do we. Thank
14: you.
3: All right. Our next item is a briefing on the Co-Responder Expansion Grant and compli- contract compliance.
15: Um, more coffee? <coughs> I
5: otherwise I'll be running to these coffee room. <laughs>
3: good morning and welcome um dawn would you like to make any comments and introduce the audit team and then i'll ask the police department uh to do the same
6: sure yes thank you auditor o'brien um just a few words before we begin um we audit the grants because of the important because it's important to make sure that city agencies are good stewards of the money used to fund a variety of programs and services throughout the city We chose this grant because it is funded by local taxpayer money and the importance uh, that it provide the behavioral health services to city residents in an effort to reduce arrests and improve access to those services. The audit provides recommendations to improve grant management for the funds that support the co-responder expansion program. So with that I will hand it over to the agency for their introductions.
16: Great, thank you, and good morning, uh, Auditor O'Brien, uh, Audit Committee, and Audit Team. Uh, my name is Jeff Holliday. I'm the Chief of Staff for the Department of Public Safety. Uh, I'm joined this morning by our Chief Financial Officer, Laura Walker, and Scott Snow, who oversees the co-responder program within the Denver Depar- uh, Police Department. Uh, I, I wanted to, uh, by way of just general comments, if I may, um, Uh, to to express uh, our thanks to the audit audit team for uh, working alongside of us. Um, This audit offered many positive recommendations, including from members of our team, several of which have uh, already been implemented, uh, as I think we'll see uh, as we go through this, uh, these audit findings, Uh, and we're grateful for uh, your uh, continued shared uh, insights into our processes. Uh, I I think I would also be remiss if I did not express uh, our disappointment at the absence of context offered uh, uh, to convey the full impact of the various environmental, economic, and societal factors in play and significantly impacting administrative operations, uh, especially during the time covered by this audit. Uh, to uh, To be clear, I don't mention this to dismiss the report's findings. Rather, uh, I offer this uh, to provide important context for the extraordinary and unprecedented activities that were transpiring over the time covered by this audit. Um, Despite uh, those uh, challenges uh, faced by uh, the Department of Safety, uh, Denver Police Department, and the other agencies that work within our umbrella, um, we continued to make sure that we performed uh, our operational tasks um, and, uh, and in fact, I believe succeeded in doing that. Finally, uh, I would just end with reiterating uh, that we value the role of the Office of the Auditor and maintain a steadfast commitment to working alongside you in the spirit of improvement, collaboration, and transparency moving forward. And with that, I'll...
3: I'll uh... Thank you. Karas?
13: All right, perfect. Good morning, auditor and committee members. My name is Kara Sepstein, and I was the manager on the Corresponder Expansion Grant and Contract Compliance Audit that we're presenting this morning. I'm, enjo- I'm joined at the table by Anna Hansen, Lead Auditor and Senior Auditors, Ron Keller, Dan O'Connor, and June Samadi. I'd like to extend my thanks on behalf of the team to the Police Department, Public Safety, and also WellPower staff who assisted with our audit. Beginning on page one of the report, the Corresponder Expansion Program provides specialized support to residents with behavioral and mental health concerns. It was funded through a grant from the Caring for Denver Foundation to the Denver Police Department after Denver voters approved a 0.25% increase in sales and use tax to pay for behavioral health services for city residents. The city then contracted with Wellpower to provide corresponders to ride along with police officers to provide mental health services in crisis situations. As shown on Table 1 on page 3 of the report, the $1.8 million grant award from the Caring for Denver Foundation was split between the Denver Police Department and Wellpower. Around $554,000 was for the department's internal costs, and about $1.2 million was for Wellpower's contracted services over the 12 months from February 2020 through January 2021. No additional funds were provided when the grant agreement was extended through July 2021. The grant agreement includes direct costs such as employee salaries and benefits and equipment, as well as indirect costs at a 10% rate. Indirect costs include expenses necessary for operational functions such as rent and utility bills. Table 2 on page 4 of the report shows the budgeted expenditures in the contract between the city and Wellpower, totaling around $1.2 million. It includes items such as employee salaries, equipment, and supplies, and an indirect cost rate of 30%. Per the caring for Denver foundation, the contract and budget grants do not have to be the same, but the departments would need to identify alternate funding sources for the extra expenses, such as the 20% difference and indirect costs. Both the departments of public safety and the police department manage aspects of both the grant and the contract. For example, public safety's finance division oversees the contracting process and assists the police department in using the city's financial system. The police department manages both the grant and the contract for more of a programmatic stance to make sure that Wellpower is providing services required and meeting its program goals. The city's Department of Finance, specifically the controller's office, is responsible for managing the city's accounting functions, such as ensuring the integrity of the city's financial statements and enforcing the city's fiscal rules and policies, like those related to prop payment and interest penalties. Because the program is solely funded with city taxpayer dollars to help people who are suffering from mental illness, substance abuse problems, or both It is essential that the dollars are being safeguarded and used appropriately. Therefore, the objective of our audit as we discuss on the highlights page of the report was to determine whether the police department is effectively monitoring the caring for Denver corresponder expansion, grant and contract expenditures, whether it was compliant with grant and contract requirements, and the extent it verifies the accuracy and reliability of data that WellPower uses for its annual reports. For our scope, we reviewed the department's compliance with grant and contract requirements for allowable costs, reporting and invoicing and sole source justification. We specifically reviewed documentation and data between January, 2020 through July, 2021. We did not review the effectiveness or efficiency of the corresponder program itself. And with that, uh, sorry, before turning it over to Anna, I'll open the floor for any questions or comments on the background.
3: Questions, comments? Let's continue. Okay,
17: all right. All right. Thank you, Paris, and good morning. Starting on page six of the report, finding one looks at how the Denver Police Department and the Department of Public Safety do not sufficiently manage the grant or contract for the Correspondent Expansion Program. This finding has five sub findings of which I will present the first three. Starting on page seven of the report sub finding one focuses on how the Denver police department and department of public safety have not paid invoices on time and owe Wellpower interest. The two deba- departments were paying invoices later than city guidance allows, and we're not ensuring well power submitted invoices on time. From a sample of 12 invoices from April 2020 through July 2021, we found Wellpower submitted half of their invoices late, and the Department of Public Safety's finance staff paid all but one of them late. The departments paid the rest of the invoices between 11 days and as much as seven and a half months late. The City's Prompt Pay Ordinance says that penalties in the form of interest begin 36 days after the invoice date if an invoice remains unpaid. Because of these late payments, the City's controller's Office calculated a total amount of $32,000 in late fee penalties based on City ordinance requirements but we found staff in both the police department and the city's uh, in the controller's office waived prompt pay penalties in cases where the penalty should have been assessed. In addition, we found well power had not initially agreed to waive those penalties. As shown on page eight, Before this audit, WellPower did not have a secure way of transferring sensitive files to the departments, such as invoices and support documentation. During our audit, WellPower used the same secure site we had set up to transfer audit documentation to also submit invoices to the department for payments. As of May 24, 2022, neither the departments nor Wellpower had established their own more uh, wor- per- permanent workaround. Failure to ensure uh, invoices, sorry, failure to ensure invoices are submitted and paid on time prevents the department from being able to confirm. That Well Power performed all the services it would, was hired for and puts the department at risk of incurring avoidable interest penalties. We offered two recommendations. I will read the recommendations and um, I'll pause for uh, comments or questions right after. Recommendation 1.1 on page 9 says the Denver Police Department and Department of Public Safety should work with WellPower and the city's technology services agency to identify a secure way to transfer invoices and supporting documentation. WellPower should notify designated department staff of file transfers and department staff should confirm receipt until both parties are confident that documents are being sent and received on time. The departments have agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented as of June 20, 2022. Continuing on page nine recommendation 1.2 says the Denver police department and department of public safety should work with the city's finance department to identify the prompt pay interest. The city owes well power from late invoice payments. Once the amount owed is identified, the department should work with Wellpower to determine an agreed upon amount owed and pay this amount to Wellpower from a funding source other than the grant. If Wellpower agrees to waive any amount of interest owed, this decision should be documented. The departments have disagreed with this recommendation. Based upon the, the department's official response, we provided additional information applicable to recommendation 1.2 in the auditor's addendum found on page 39 of the report. I will pause right now to open the floor for questions or comments.
3: Jeff, I'll ask you if you have any additional comments. Uh,
16: th- uh, thank you. Um, I, uh, a- as was noted uh, on uh, audit finding uh, 1.1, uh, that, that uh, item was completed. Um, and uh, as you also note and and we responded uh, via our written response we do uh, respectfully disagree with uh, audit finding 1.2 and I believe that we have also shared um, the uh, uh, supporting documentation for uh, that position I, I, I have no other comments
5: questions from the audit committee I'd just like to revisit it one more time in terms of your reluctancy to calculate and pay overdue interest. Just, just, I'm just curious. So if you could verbalize your position. I don't think. Please. Oh, (laughs) apologies. Uh,
16: I I, I wouldn't characterize um, our our position on this as a reluctancy uh, to calculate um, uh, uh, untimely uh, uh, payment or untimely interest. Um, I think. This goes back to my earlier comment uh, about context. Um, and as it, as it happens, uh, the department, the, the, the two departments were experiencing significant staffing shortages uh, at levels that I think were unpredictable. Um, and thusly, uh, we were not fully prepared uh, to deal with the uh, massive turnover, uh, somewhere in the range of a 44% reduction in staffing uh, over a very short period of time brought on. Uh, not only by um, uh, the movement of, of personnel uh, related to uh, the pandemic, but also decisions around uh, voluntary separation in response to e- economic pressures uh, um, anticipated by the city. Um, and so, it's in my mind less about <clears throat> uh, less about a reluctance uh, to uh, calculate uh, uh, the the penalty and remit payment. Uh, we remain committed to, to, to doing that in accordance with uh, city rule. Um, it, it was uh, more about uh, being overwhelmed and requesting of our, of our vendor uh, partner um, a, an accommodation to waive in this particular instance uh, those fees, um, uh, which, they, which they agreed to do.
5: So Mr. Holiday, in the future though, <clears throat> are you planning to have any internal controls surrounding that area?
16: yes we do uh, and and that is in process importantly one of the uh, uh, one of the key elements of this uh, was that uh, the Denver Police Department uh, finance capacity specifically related to this task uh, was uh, was mer has since been merged uh, with the Department of Safety we see that as an opportunity to add a multiplier effect and try to counteract the possibility that in a few fu- in the future if we experience an unprecedented pandemic, um, uh, just by way of example, uh, that we're better prepared to deal with that, uh, with with, the, with that uh, uh, potentiality. And uh, we are in the process of developing those controls to make sure uh, that um, this uh, doesn't become a potential issue in the future. Sure.
18: Anna?
17: Uh, finding two starts at the bottom of page nine and says the Denver Police Department and Department of Public Safety did not keep appropriate documentation to support approved grant expenditures. To determine whether the expenses were accurate and appropriate, we requested documentation from the departments for the sample of the 12 invoices, but neither department could provide any of these um, documents. Therefore, we had to heavily re- rely on well power to provide such documentation. The city's record retention schedule says documents related to the monitoring of grants must be kept for the duration of the grant plus six years unless a longer retention period is required by the entity providing the grant. We offered recommendations 1.3 and 1.4. And again, I will read them both and then open the floor for comments and questions. Starting on page 10 of the report, recommendation 1.3 says the Denver Police Department should work with the Department of Public Safety to ensure it complies with the city's record retention policy related to invoice supporting documentation. The departments have agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented as of June 20, 2022. Recommendation 1.4 on page 11 says the Denver Police Department and the Department of Public Safety should develop and document formal succession plans for all positions related to grant and contract management to ensure the departments can continue to comply with the grant and contract if key staff leave. The departments have agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of March 1, 2023. And I would like to pause to uh, allow comments and uh, Questions from agency and uh, audit committee members
16: thank you thank you with respect to uh, recommendation 1.3 again I would simply note uh, that um, uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, context is important and in this regard uh, part of the struggle that we had with the uh, with the significant uh, loss of staffing resources made it uh, very difficult during the time of the interview uh, to be fully responsive to your request um, uh, however, uh, we have uh, we have completed um, our, our recommendation. We, we, we did agree, um, and um, uh, and that uh, is resolved. Um, similarly, in 1.4, uh, we, we agree with the recommendation, and uh, uh, succession planning is uh, in process uh, as we speak. Thank you. Uh,
3: questions from the committee. Should we continue?
17: Continuing on page 11 of the report, sub-finding three says the Denver Police Department and Department of Public Safety charged unallowable expenditures to the grant. Specifically, we found unallowable expenditures in the form of a higher indirect cost rate, travel expenses, and expenses from the wrong grant year. First, the Police Department's grant agreement with the Caring for Denver Foundation included a budget on how to spend the $1.8 million in grant funds. The grant budget provided for 10% of the funds to cover indirect costs of the police department's third party uh, contractor, WellPower. Then the police department signed a contract with WellPower to provide the services outlined in the grant award. But the contract allowed for a rate of 30% for indirect costs instead of the 10% specified in the grant agreement, and added a line for a reduction of WellPower's program income, which was also not in the grant. We also found that WellPower was deducting program income, which came from insurance providers for mental health services, from the total costs, including both indirect and direct, instead of just direct costs. Second, the grant agreement's budget did not include travel costs, but we found that from August 2020 through December 2021, the police department charged about $4,400 in travel costs to the grant. Police department managers confirmed they charged mileage reimbursements against the grant funds and said public safety was working on fixing this error. Third, as shown in figure one on page uh, page two, of the report, the police department received additional funding from the foundation to further expand the Corresponder program through a 2021 grant. We found the Denver Department incorrectly, police department, sorry, incorrectly posted $156,000 in expenditures related to the 2020 Corresponder Expansion Program grant to this new grant, even though the 2020 grant was still in effect and had around $383,000 still available. By the police department not understanding all the terms of its current agreement related to, these, uh, to which costs can and cannot be reimbursed, the city risks over or underpaying for expenses and indirect costs. It may also use grant funds inappropriately when they should have been spent specifically on the Corresponder Expansion Program to help meet program objectives. We offered six recommendations. Uh, Again, I will read them out uh, first and then open the floor. All right, so starting on page 16, recommendation 1.5 says the Department of Public Safety and the Denver Police Department should work with the city's finance department to identify another source of funding to make up for the 20 percentage point difference in the indirect cost rate between the grant agreement and the contract with WellPower, and to reimburse the grant award for the amount of indirect costs the department has overcharged the grant. The departments have agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented as of August 1st, 2022. Also on page 16, recommendation 1.6, says the Department of Public Safety and the Denver Police Department should work with the City's Finance Department to determine whether the program income well-power received should be deducted from the direct costs or the total costs, including both direct and indirect costs. The departments have agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December 15, 2022. At the bottom of page 16, recommendation 1.7 says the Department of Public Safety and the Denver Police Department should ensure Well Power is providing documentation to support monthly program income, for example, the amount billed to and paid by the insurance, along with other insurance supporting documentation for future invoices. The departments have agreed with this recommendation and reported It had been implemented as of September, 2022. On page 17, recommendation 1.8 says that because the correspondent program is funded on an annual basis, the department should work with the city attorney's office to formalize the program's indirect costs and program income deduction approach in future contracts related to the program to ensure clarity and fairness for both the city and the service provider. The departments have agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of November 30, 2022. Continuing on page 17, recommendation 1.9 says the Denver Police Department and the Department of Public Safety should identify another source of funds to cover travel reimbursements for the Corresponder Programs Outreach Case Coordinators. Once identified, the police department should use this to reimburse the 2020 Caring for Denver correspondent Program Grant for the $4,427.84 in unallowable travel costs. The departments have agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented as of August 1st, 2022. Also on page 17, Recommendation 1.10 says the Denver Police Department and Department of Public Safety uh-huh. should work with the city's finance department to identify and implement an appropriate accounting practice to allocate expenses to correct, correct grant award periods. The departments have agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented as of July 1st, 2021. Based upon the, the Department's official response, we provided additional information applicable to Recommendation 1.10 in the auditor's addendum found on page 39 of the report. And now I will open the floor for any questions or comments. After that, Ron will present the remaining sub-findings in finding one.
3: Jeff, <clears throat> anything in addition to what you've already
16: uh, uh, thank you. Just a, a couple of, of of quick notes. Uh, um, we 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 have agreed with uh, all of the recommendations as, as offered. Uh, two things. One, I just wanted to reiterate that the department does uh, operate in compliance with uh, generally accepted accounting principles and city fiscal accountability rules. Um, and um, and secondly. Um, Mr. Snow has, uh, or is in the process of establishing re- recurring meetings with Wellpower, um, specifically for the purpose of making sure that we add a level of accountability to the broad range of activities that we're engaged in with them uh, in an effort to mitigate future concerns in this regard.
3: Thank you. Uh, questions from the committee? <clears throat>
19: Ron? Well, thank you, Anna. <clears throat> Beginning at the bottom of page 17, we will discuss sub-finding number four. The Denver Police Department and the Department of Public Safety did not record interest earnings and return unspent funds. First, some context. The grant agreement requires any income earned on the $1.8 million grant award to be spent according to the grant's purpose. In addition, city fiscal accountability rules require compliance with the grant terms. Interest earned was posted to the grant award through the end date of July 31, 2021. But the grant award was not closed at the end date as required by city fiscal rules. It remained open in workday, the city system of record. Therefore, unspent funds in the award continued to earn interest of about $18,000 as of April 1, 2022. Since the award was not closed, the Department of Finance continued to calculate the monthly earned interest. Finance Department procedures provide that interest earnings are calculated based on the cash balance of a grant at the end of each month. The department then notifies the agency grant contact who monitors interest earnings of the dollar amount. Grant managers then update the grant budget in the city's financial system, but the police department did not inform the Department of Fan- Finance of a new grant contact. It also did not follow up to obtain monthly interest dollar amounts and update the grant award as required. As a result, the unspent funds available for the program were understated in Workday and grant managers were not aware of the available dollars for program spending. Secondly, and continuing on page 18, and as noted, the grant award and workday remained open as of April, 2022, even though the award ended on July 31, 2021. City fiscal rules require its closure within 90 days of the end date. According to the award terms, any unexpended funds at the end of an award period were to be returned immediately to the foundation but the Department had not returned any funds. The unspent funds, including earned interest, resulted in a fund balance of about $438,000 at the end of April 2022. The Police Department could have used this money for the co-responder expansion program or returned it to the Foundation to help people in Denver through other initiatives required by the Caring for Denver ordinance. For example, the money could have help fund alternative to jail facilities, or training for first responders, such as paramedics and firefighters. The police department did not work with the city's finance department to close the award and return the unspent grant funds to the foundation. Based on staff comments, a contributing factor was that neither the police department nor public safety managers have background knowledge of the city's financial system and its grant management capabilities. Therefore, they were also not using the Workday grant management features to monitor the award. We have three recommendations for this finding. I will read all recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. Recommendation 1.11 on page 20 says the Denver Police Department and the Department of Public Safety should be trained on and use the City's grant management function in Workday, the City's system of record, to help manage and monitor the co-responder expansion program grant for compliance and for accounting awareness of grant expenses the agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of november 30 2022. recommendation 1.12 on page 20 says the denver police department and the department of public safety's Point of contact with the city's budget and management office and controllers office should ensure they are receiving monthly notifications related to grant interest earnings. The responsible party should then update the workday budget to actual report accordingly. The agency agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented as of July 26, 2022. Recommendation 1.13 on page 20, says the Denver Police Department and Department of Public Safety should close the 2020 Caring for Denver grant for the co-responder expansion program and return the unspent money, including interest earned to the Caring for Denver Foundation. The agency agreed with this recommendation and reported it would be implemented as of today, September 15, 2022. So I would like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the committee or agency.
14: Yeah.
16: Thank you. Uh, I, uh, I, I would uh, also uh, note the uh, additional context as, as I previously mentioned about um, uh, staffing. One of the issues I think that we had faced uh, was that uh, we had built uh, specialized uh, knowledge and expertise um, in, a, in, a, in a compartmentalized or siloed fashion uh, within our accounting functions. Uh, So in addition to having trained uh, staff on uh, the uh, 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 grant procedures uh, uh, for for the city, we're also uh, working to cross train uh, individuals and so that we spread the knowledge base so that when we lose any one person, uh, we don't lose the knowledge uh, that that person holds uh, that then uh, negatively impacts our work Uh, uh, with that all yield.
5: I have a question for you really quickly in terms of grant monitoring. Do you have one individual monitoring the contract or do you have several? I'm just trying to get an idea in terms of uh, workload perspective.
16: Uh, We we have several.
3: So I have a question that probably is for the Caring for Denver Foundation, but they had a grant that ended on July 31st, and nine months later they still hadn't closed the grant. Do you you know why? I mean...
20: uh... Yes, we were working uh, during that time to to reconcile the grant and close out the grant, and just due to staffing shortages, we didn't um, have the capacity to completely reconcile the grant. Uh, The two individuals responsible, the two accountants responsible for closing the the grant, one one of those positions was frozen within 2021 uh, due to COVID, and the other position uh, left in the summer of 2021. So we were working to fill those positions um, and we did not fill those fully fill those positions until the summer of 2022.
3: Thank you. Shall we continue?
19: Okay. Thank you. Beginning on page 21 of the report, we will discuss subfinding number five. The departments are missing some required grant and contract documentation, including their justification for contracting directly with well power. Starting on page 21 of the report, as it relates to the Wellpower contract, we found the police department could not provide documentation justifying why it contracted directly with Wellpower instead of using a competitive selection process with other qualified bidders. Police department managers said a justification was prepared and referred the team to multiple parties, but no documentation of any justification could be found nor was it uploaded to the city's contract system. The police department also could not provide evidence that it completed a contractually required risk assessment and due diligence review of well power. A due diligence review would look at the organization's ability to perform, including financial and operational capability. Without supporting sole source documentation, the police department Cannot show why it did not use a competitive selection process and instead directly chose Wellpower. This combined without a due diligence assessment diminishes the police department's transparency with the public on how it chose the program's mental health service provider. Finally, and continuing on page 21, the police department could not provide documentation showing several important grant award deliverables. These related, first, a required addendum to the grant award, identifying the department's plan milestones to demonstrate progress toward achieving program goals. Second, written progress reports or documentation to show discussions and decisions from quarterly check-in meetings with the foundation. And lastly, a final report at Project N of all grant expenditures which is specifically required by the grant award. The lack of supporting documentation relating to fundamental deliverables required by the grant agreement and well power contract prevents the police department and public safety from ensuring all grant and contract terms were met. This impedes the department's ability to demonstrate accountability to their stakeholders including the Caring for Denver Foundation well power, the public and the people benefiting from the program services. Now we have eight recommendations for this sub finding. I will read all eight recommendations before pausing for comments. Beginning on page 26 recommendations, 1.14 and 1.15 say that Denver police department and department of public safety should establish grant and contract oversight respectively. The agency agreed with both recommendations and reported they had been implemented as of June 19, 2022. Recommendation 1.16 on page 26 says the departments should provide grant and contract management training. The agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of November 30, 2022. Recommendations 1.17 and 1.18 on page 26 and 27 say the departments should establish and document grant and contract monitoring policies and procedures. The agencies agreed with both recommendations with an implementation date of October 31, 2022. Recommendation 1.19 on page 27 says the department should complete the sole source documentation for well power. The agency agreed with this recommendation and reported it has been implemented as of August 18, 2022. Recommendation 1.20 on page 27 says the Denver Police Department and the Department of Public Safety should conduct a subrecipient risk assessment and due diligence review of well power to comply with the contract the agency agreed with this recommendation and reported it has been implemented as of august 16 2022 based on the department's official response we provided additional information applicable to recommendation 1.20 in the auditor's addendum found on page 39 of the report and finally recommendation 1.21 on page 27, says the department should prepare and submit accurate annual reports to the Caring for Denver Foundation as required by grant agreements. The agency agreed with his recommendation and reported it has been implemented as of August 15, 2022. I would like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the committee or agency.
3: Jeff, anything additional?
16: Uh, Thank you, nothing additionally uh, from what's been provided. Thank you.
3: Uh, Questions from the audit committee? All right, finding number two.
13: Just doing a quick switcheroo here.
21: Good morning, everyone. Finding two begins on page 28 of the report and says that the Denver Police Department is not ensuring that data for the co responder expansion program is reliable and accurate. The contract between the city and Wellpower says that the police department needs to ensure that reports and data provided by Wellpower are complete and accurate. Additionally, Numerous federal guidelines surrounding data recommend that entities have policies and procedures in place to affirm the completeness and accuracy of a given data set, as well as safeguarding that data. But we found that both the police department and Wellpower lacked adequate policies and procedures to ensure that the co-responder expansion program data was complete, (coughs) accurate, or even usable. While neither the police department nor Wellpower had adequate data policies or procedures in place during our audit, Other factors did contribute to the data reliability issues that we identified. For example, the police department had limited access to the medical record system that stores all co-responder forms. And as a result, the police department was forced to accept aggregate outcome data, which limited its ability to effectively use that data. Even Even if the police department were able to access the full data set, Wellpower's lack of policies and procedures related to data entry and the subsequent review of the data entered would likely cause that data to be unusable or at the least unreliable. Without adequate policies and procedures surrounding the co-responder expansion program data, the police department cannot properly use that data to identify trends, monitor the program, or ultimately be held accountable to Denver's voters and the citizens for whom the co-responder program was created. We have four recommendations for this finding. I'll read all four recommendations before pausing to allow for questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members. Recommendation 2.1 on page 31 says that the Denver Police Department should work with Wellpower to develop and document policies and procedures for data entry related to the department's co-responder expansion program. The agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December 15, 2022. Recommendation 2.2 on page 31 says that the Denver Police Department should work with WellPower to develop and document quality assurance processes for data related to the department's co-responder expansion program to ensure that it is reliable and accurate. The agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December 15, 2022. Recommendation 2.3 on page 31 says that the Denver Police Department and WellPower should finalize the proposed data sharing agreement to allow the department to access and review individual level data in addition to the aggregate data already provided. The agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2022. And recommendation 2.4 on page 31 says that the Denver Police Department should periodically monitor the data it collects about its co-responder expansion program to ensure program measures and objectives are being met and to make decisions related to programmatic changes. The agency agreed with this recommendation and reported it has been implemented as of September 1st, 2022. This concludes our presentation of the co-responder expansion grant and contract compliance audit. I'd like to open up the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and committee members. Jeff.
16: Uh, uh, Thank you Uh, we we do agree with all of the findings I would just uh, note on recommendation 2.1 while we uh, are working uh, uh, with uh, uh, within the context of the spirit and intent of this uh, recommendation I do want to note that there are certain restrictions uh, that are imposed on the basis of protected mental health records um, and uh, I just offer that for awareness.
3: Questions from the committee? Well, thank you, I appreciate uh, the responses. Jack? Okay. Give you a do-over if you like, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff, I'd like to thank you and the department, uh, certainly for the work that you did, have done during the pandemic, during the social unrest, and what you and the police department and the entire department of public safety do every day. Uh, To keep our community safe and you do guys men
16: and women do an excellent job And I for one appreciate it very much. So thank you. Thank you auditor I I will pass that along to uh, uh, the folks on the ground that are that are out there doing this every day Uh, We we appreciate your time uh, and look forward to a continued working relationship. Thank you Mm
3: -hmm. Okay under general business we have Our next audit committee meeting is scheduled for 9 a.m. on Thursday, October the 20th, right here in the Power Widener Room. Uh, With that, we have some update from our external auditor on the audit, uh, and I'd like to go into executive session as that is a work in process at this point in time. Is there a motion to do so? Any discussion of the motion? All in favor, say aye. Aye. Any opposed? We are in executive session.
2: Think you have enough people? Do we need more people? Do we need more funding? What what do we need to be up to the
7: task? You know, we can always use more more firefighters, more equipment. Um, You know what you talked about in that fire station. You know, we have cross-staffed fire apparatus, so you know we might have four or six firefighters in that station depending on the makeup. But uh, in the event of a wildfire, we would take both of those trucks. Um, and split up the, the membership there. Ah. Um, so yeah, if, if we you know had a blank checkbook and could could hire more and, and staff both rigs all the time, it, it would provide a faster uh, response with more more
2: personnel. Yeah. But fire chiefs in fire zones always say after a big fire, can't hire your way. can't hire your way out of a fire. They're just too big and, and too fast. So I guess it's all about preparedness. That's what it's all about. Well, there's a lot to think about here. Fortunately, the state is spending money. The, uh, the, the fire uh, task force is, is on the job, and firefighters are now, I think, more vigilant than ever for things that can get out of hand. It's been wonderful having you all here today and uh, having this information, and let's hope going forward. Uh, that maybe in a couple of years we could, you know, maybe we just get some rain. That would really, you know, that would really, <laughs> Love that. that would really, maybe a lot of rain still and a lot more drought. snow. Yeah, still in the drought. Still in the drought. <laughs> so difficult. Well, you have dangerous jobs, Leslie. Sometimes your job is dangerous as well. So stay <laughs> low into the ground. As,
12: as dangerous as.
2: <laughs> drop. Uh, stop. Drop and roll. That's you know. That's, that's what right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we got to remember. You and I. You <laughs> my, my next public hearing.
12: I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> stop. Stop. <laughs> drop and
2: roll at the public hearings. And uh, the two of you uh, stay safe. And all your Thank people, you. we hope that they stay so safe as well. And it was great having you here today. We hope that all of you have uh, taken some information away from the show. And we appreciate you joining us today as well. Stay safe.
22: Sometimes we look at steel as an artifact of the past, but even today, it's still very modern. The rebar that's reinforcing the streets below our feet, the pipe that's delivering the water, the electricity that we plug our toasters into.
23: Wherever you're looking at something big that was happening and changing people's lives in the late 19th and early 20th century, you're going to find a steel product. The biggest patterns of change are genuinely supported by and constructed by steel.
20: One of the most important legacies of Colorado Fuel and Iron is that it's an industry created in Colorado. It's still a connection to Colorado's past.
24: All the places that created the story of the Western United States were built in some way with CF&I. They built all the products that connected us.
0: It was really important in laying the groundwork for the society we live in today. It really sort of forges the cities and the transportation networks and the systems. That mill is Pueblo. Pretty much anybody you stop on the street and you talk to, they know
25: somebody or have somebody in their family who worked in that plant. At one time, one in ten people in the state worked for that place. I was once the largest private employer in Colorado was the largest private landowner, the largest private water owner. CF and I really ran the economy of Colorado in some ways for many years.
4: And your life revolved around the mill. There was the 7 a.m. whistle. There was the noon whistle. There was the 3 o'clock whistle. You set your clock by what was going on at the mill, and it set the sort of tempo and cadence of the whole community.
25: goes back to 1872, William Jackson Palmer, a retired Civil War general. He was a railroad man from Pennsylvania. He had seen the power of coal in the Industrial Revolution in England, and he understood how that was going to power the railroads in the West.
20: He was a young man of good education. He had a great set of skills that were marketable in the post-Civil War world. But he didn't have a lot of money. So he turned his eyes west, like thousands of other young men who decided this was a time to make a great change in their lives. Opportunity lay in the West. He took a job with the Union Pacific Eastern Division, later named the Kansas and Pacific Railroad. Shortly after the Kansas and Pacific Railroad arrived in Denver in 1870, he threw all of his energy into a new vision, and that was a railroad that would run along the spine of the Rocky Mountains from north to south.
26: He loved the beauty and the economic promise of the mountains. They inspired him, in his words, to think lofty thoughts. And Palmer realized that building a railroad was the key to unlocking potential mining wealth of gold and silver, and mostly of coal. Palmer was a capitalist, but he was at heart a utopian. He believed that industry would create a better society for everyone. He spelled out a vision of an industrial society in Colorado that was managed by Palmer and his close friends for the benefit of all of the workers that was benevolent and concerned about the needs of the employees.
20: The Central Colorado Improvement Company was quickly organized in late 1871. Palmer, as he was driving the railroad further south, he was driving to get to the rich markets of Santa Fe, Texas, and eventually Mexico but he's also driving his railroad south to reach the rich coal seams in southern Colorado. And this is a key component to his plan.
23: If you want to have significant control over your economic activity and your production, you will want to have the raw materials, the transportation system to get those raw materials to the processing, to get those materials from where they have been to where the market is. It's very characteristic of the American industrial process of the late 19th and early 20th century. It's all about control, and sometimes it's about monopoly.
20: Everything necessary to make steel lay within a matter of miles of Pueblo. And so Palmer devised a plan that Pueblo would become sort of the industrial heart of his empire. And he founded the Colorado Coal and Iron Company in 1880, and the CC&I opened for operations in 1881.
26: Palmer built the signature industry of Pueblo when he constructed the Bessemer Steelworks. This large steel foundry was the only one of its kind west of the Mississippi River. They called Pueblo the Pittsburgh of the West
25: could manufacture his narrow-gauge rails here in Pueblo rather than having them shipped more expensively from the east. And the first steel rails came out of that steel operation in 1882.
24: Palmer had this vision of this kind of industrial utopia south of the river. He executed his vision by creating a land development company that created south Pueblo the city to bring businesses and a city government to that area and try to get development going there. At that point, Bessemer is really no bigger than some of the coal mining camps. In the early 1880s, they had a couple hundred people and some business. and you know, he called the neighborhood on the bluff overlooking the Arkansas River his crown, my Corona, and that would overlook the river and overlook the depot and overlook his commercial interests and that would be the industrial crown of his
26: empire. Palmer was very successful in developing the upper end of his vision of creating sort of elite societies for the upper class. Towns he founded, like Colorado Springs, became very important gathering places for wealthy eastern seaboard residents or British investors who would come to the Rocky Mountains and stay at Palmer's hotel, the Antlers. He never got to the other part of his vision of using his company to better the entire social condition of his workers.
20: cc began to drag on its resources. They brought in a series of Eastern investors who criticized Palmer for his, what they declared mismanagement of the railroad, his inability to make a profit. They believed he placed primacy on the steelworks instead of focusing all of his attention on the Denver and Rio Grande, and they rebelled against him. In the end, he ended up losing his railroad and Colorado Coal and Iron Company. When Palmer died in March 1909, he was lionized by the Denver Papers as the greatest booster Colorado ever had, one of its greatest citizens, and a man responsible for the economic development of a large part of the state.
26: Palmer brought that industrialization to the West. He organized the factory that spun the steel that crisscrossed the state and ultimately the West.
18: The miner drills a number of holes. In each, he places several sticks of dynamite. He fires, and tons of coal burst nature's shackles of millions of years, eager to do man's bidding in home and industry.
0: In the late 19th and early 20th century, coal really powered every sector of Colorado's economy. The mining of coal itself, of course, was a huge economic activity, but then coal also made possible so many other things from steam locomotives to factories that made cities like Denver and Pueblo such centers of economic activity. Every homeowner in the front range, most folks up in the mountains burned coal.
26: John C. Osgood was a self-made man. He grew up in pretty poor circumstances in Brooklyn. As a child, his father moved his family to Iowa. He taught himself ins and outs of business and finance and represented a group of investors who by the 1890s were in a position to create their own coal company in Colorado, the Colorado Fuel Company. Osgood concentrated on the southern coal fields around Trinidad and Walsenburg, but he also focused on massive western slope coal fields where he found huge deposits of coal that were waiting to be extracted by an enterprising capitalist such as he.
27: Osgood was a very shrewd businessman. He wanted to buy out as much or take over as much of the competition as he could. So he built up his business and he ran very, very keen competition to William Jackson Palmer. Eventually, Osgood and the Iowa Group would take over the Colorado Coal and Iron Company. In 1850. 92, they formed then what became known as the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Osgood was always interested in Colorado because coal deposits here were some of the best coking coal in the world. By 1885, he began developing the coal deposits at Coal Basin, west of Redstone. Osgood fell in love with the area, and once he got a rail connection, he wanted to build a model industrial village. And south of the village, he wanted to build this beautiful mansion. That would be his country estate.
20: Osgood institutes a lot of the ideas in social engineering and revolutionizing the industrial and human processes of coal mining. So he moves from the standard paternalism of the 19th century to the social engineering of the late 19th, early 20th century. So he creates the sociological department. He creates housing for his employees and churches and schools and opportunities to engage in social activities. And he believes a happy worker is a worker that won't go on strike.
26: Osgood despised unions. He thought unions sapped the vitality of businesses by draining away resources that could be used to reinvest in capital expansion. Osgood was willing to fight a war to the death with unions if necessary. He was at least an experimenter in the idea of welfare capitalism. The idea that one way to undermine the grievances of unions was to provide social benefits to the employees that weren't normally offered in the workplace. And so Osgood was kind of a pioneer in experimenting with model company towns and allowing workers to live in not the squalid little shacks that were typical of company towns in America, but in beautiful craftsman
0: style swift chalets. So in the early years of the coal industry, most of the communities outside of the mine mouths were so-called open camps. And in open camps, there's this variety of property owners. There were independent storekeepers. Now, in response to earlier labor disputes, and in particular a strike in 1894, Colorado Fuel and Iron Company and other large mine operators increasingly started to build closed camps. And these closed camps were company towns. Everything was owned by the companies. This meant that workers lived in homes owned by CF&I. They worshiped in churches where the ministers were appointed by CF&I. They went to schools that were mostly funded by CF&I. And they were even named after CF&I executives. But over time, what this meant is that more and more of the resentments and the conflicts that had previously been distributed amongst employers, landlords, ministers, doctors, storekeepers, all became increasingly concentrated in a single figure. And that figure was the coal company.
23: It makes sense that people in that situation, the leaders of those enterprises would do everything they could to get the most controllable labor force they could get. These workers will be in geographically isolated places. Diversifying that workforce in ethnicity, nationality, language is a smart move. If you want to have workers who are going to have a hard time creating union movements, having them unable to speak to each other, well that's helpful, but it does mean opportunity and because people are adaptable and resilient and sociable, pretty often it means the creation of new forms of community.
28: The company was famous for its sociological department, which was a large department that covered hospital expenses for their employees, ran kindergartens and secondary schools, and did lots of things to make employees' life
26: better. Dr. Richard Corwin was a medical practitioner at a hospital in Chicago, and in 1881 he was offered the job of chief surgeon at a new hospital that the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company was building for its workers in Pueblo. Corwin came to Colorado with the intent of starting a company hospital, a hospital to treat workers who were injured in industrial accidents, but also to provide for their ongoing health. Corwin believed that hygiene and good health were the key to creating happy workers. He took a little one-room hospital and turned it into one of the gems of industrial hospitals in America at the time. Corwin was also placed in charge of the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company's Sociological Department, a department created by John C. Osgood to learn more about the nature of his huge immigrant workforce. CFNI and i was the largest employer in Colorado in the 18 and early 1900s. More than 15,000 people, and many were immigrants. It was said that the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company printed its rules and regulations in 27 different languages. And Corwin's job was to somehow figure out how to integrate this, this multinational polyglot labor force into a single unit that would be productive, the sociological department provided free kindergarten for the children of the workers it provided adult training courses in cooking and sewing and cleaning house for the wives i can't stress how
28: unique cfni is as a welfare capitalist company in the first decade of the 20th century and even the teens there are only about really five companies in all of the united states that are doing as much as cfni was they look to see if eyes uh, pioneer in this, and either try to copy what they thought they did right, or to change what they thought they did badly.
25: During the years that John Osgood was president of the company, they published a company newsletter called Camp and Plant. It was a weekly newsletter, and Camp and Plant had stories about happenings in the coal mines, happenings in the steel mill. Many of those articles were published in multiple languages
29: they in Spanish. They're also in Italian and they're also in English. You have at least 21 different languages that are spoken. So you're getting a glimpse into the life of the employee.
0: There wasn't a very large local workforce at the beginning. And so the Mines served as this really powerful magnet drawing in people from all across the United States and from all across the world. It was an incredibly diverse workforce and a workforce that came to Colorado with varying degrees of experience underground. Many folks entering the coal industry had never been underground at all.
26: By the 1890s, the Bessemer Steel Foundry in Pueblo was falling behind technologically. So Osgood in 1899 renovated the entire Bessemer plant. He installed new roller mills. He installed a wire rolling facility.
27: Expansion meant opening up new coal mines, building more coking plants, installing two new blast furnaces. All of this activity has absorbed a lot of capital, and good ran out of money.
28: John D. Rockefeller Jr. first invested in the Colorado steel industry right after the turn of the 20th century. He got a tip from one of his relatives that this would be a good company to invest in, and then when that company had more problems just a couple of years later, He became the majority stockholder, and from about 1903-1904 to 1944, the Rockefeller family controlled the company.
26: The Rockefellers became majority investors, but they kept quite a bit of managerial distance between themselves and the operations in Colorado. John D. Rockefeller Jr. had a pretty hands-off approach.
0: They sent a close family associate, a real hard-nosed character named Lamont Montgomery Bowers, out to Colorado.
20: Lamont Bowers and other associates within CF&I viewed the coal workers and steel workers in Colorado as less than human.
27: When Osgood lost control of cf 9 he would form another fuel company, Victor American Fuel Company. Now, he did not build model villages. We see the hard edge of Osgood then after 1903. He wanted to close the towns and camps, keep the workers in, and the union out.
23: out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing seems to govern the situation of Western industry until it's just so evident that the hard rock mines, the coal mines, the industrial facilities, those are places that are totally, classically, places of industrial tension and industrial warfare. That's not the West that we choose to think of. People in really difficult, life-threatening industrial workplaces. We don't want to think about that. We want them on horseback and we want them riding towards the horizon.
20: In the early 20th century, Colorado was second only to Wyoming in the number of mine accidents. The Colorado coal seams were inherently unstable because they're located within friable granite mountains and they were quite dangerous to work in.
0: When I look through immigration and naturalization records from Southern Colorado, many miners actually bore the marks of the coal industry on their bodies. That extended from missing limbs, missing fingers, to what miners called coal tattoos, bluish black marks on their bodies that consisted of coal that had been blasted into their skin.
6: The first question after a mine accident was how was the mule? miners could be easily replaced.
0: The miners always faced this devil's bargain. Should they try to get more coal out of the ground, or should they take more care with their safety? They were generally paid only for the coal that they brought out of the earth. They weren't paid for laying new track, timbering, all these sorts of things that were necessary for efficient and for safe production.
20: Colorado Fuel and Iron operated a feudal kingdom in southern Colorado. Every aspect of their lives was controlled.
6: The coal camps were often fenced off. Only certain people could go in and out. The safety conditions were terrible. In Warfano County alone, nearly 500 miners died underground.
0: I think it's pretty clear that the overarching purpose of the company towns was really to control workers and in particular to prevent the United Mine workers from gaining a foothold in Southern Colorado. CF and I had its own detective agency. Coal companies often employed the Pinkerton Detective Agency, so they were spying on workers who were trying to organize. They used violence against people who they suspected of organizing, beating them up, throwing them out of the company towns, denying them employment.
26: Mother Jones was known as the most dangerous woman in America. Mary Harris was an Irish immigrant who came to the United States and worked as a school teacher and a dressmaker. Tragically, she lost her entire family to yellow fever, both her husband and her children. And when that happened, Mother Jones decided that she really should be the mother of the working class. And so by the 1890s, she was one of the most active and charismatic and energetic labor organizers in the country. Wherever she went, press attention followed.
6: The miners met in a conference in Trinidad in September of 1913. Mother Jones, she said, if you men are too cowardly to vote to go on strike, there are enough women in the county to beat the hell out of you. If it's strike or slavery, strike until the last one of you drops dead.
20: When those workers voted to strike in the fall of 1913, they weren't just fighting for better pay or better working conditions, they were actually fighting for the right to live freely, for the right to exercise their rights as American citizens, to not be surrounded by armed guards, to not have to live by the laws and the creed of the company.
0: Two main operators controlled the properties above Ludlow, Called a fuel and iron, which was the Rockefeller family, and Victor American, which was where John C. Osgood had gone after selling most of his interest in C.F. and I.
27: One thing that John C. Osgood always stressed in his anti-union tirades was that the union leaders, they were anarchists, socialists, they were doing that for their own self-interest, not the interest of the miners.
26: Coal companies in the great coal strike put together sort of an informal alliance and sent representatives to collude with each other, really, in order to manage the strike. It's debatable at any given point how much John D. Rockefeller Jr. really knew about what was going on in the day-to-day operations of the strike, but he had a delegate and that was Lamont Bowers, the local manager for CFNI. Bowers reflected the attitude of the Rockefellers and the Rosgood that unions were a danger to free enterprise. The strike
27: could have been prevented had Osgood and Bowers been willing to meet with the union leaders. They refused to do that. The operators would not even enter the same room with the union leaders.
20: To go on strike meant you're homeless. And they went out onto the plains of Colorado in what was the record-breaking snowstorm in the winter of 1913, 1914. Snow drifts three, four, five feet high. And they stayed out on strike for 15 months. They lived as families in canvas tents heated by a coal stove.
0: Ludlow was just one of more than 10 tent colonies that the union had established up and down the hogbacks of Las Animas, Werfano, and Fremont counties to house workers who'd been evicted from company housing. The Ludlow Colony had this strategic position that it could use to try to stop the flow of strike breakers into the mines above. If they could band together, if they could get every single mine worker to walk off the job, they could literally turn off the lights in Colorado, and they could place CF&I under immense pressure to resolve the dispute, to recognize the UMW, and to make further concessions to its employees.
28: I think the most important thing about the coal Field War that people forget is there's violence all the
0: way through that strike. The Union gave as good as it got. At the beginning of the Colorado National Guard militia's intervention, both sides perceived the militia as a neutral force and it seems like by and large this is how the militia behaved. By April of 1914 soldiers enlistments are running out.
22: Most of them have not been paid. They're farmers, they're School teachers, they're laborers. They want to go back and make some money. The bills are stacking up, so they leave the field. The governor and Brigadier General John Chase make it official and begin to withdraw the troops. John Chase decides to deputize some of the mine guards so that there's still some kind of security for the replacement workers. It doesn't take long for those in the tent colony to see what's going on. The mine guards are beginning to don some of the Colorado National Guard uniforms
0: and man Colorado National Guard machine guns. By the dawn of April 20th, 1914, Governor Ammons had reduced the size of the guard deployment. They felt quite vulnerable. You had two sides that deeply distrusted the other. There was no voice of reason, no neutral power. Once the shooting started, and I think to this day nobody really knows who shot first, both sides really put into motion their contingency plans. For the strikers, they pulled out their weapons in a nearby arroyo, and they tried to draw fire away from the Ludlow tent colony. By that point, most of the women and children had probably been put into the cellars that had been dug beneath the tents as a response to the gunfights that had already become a common feature of daily life at Ludlow. That left the tent colony vulnerable So by the afternoon, the militia come down into Ludlow itself, and tents start to burn. Strikers said that the militiamen intentionally set fire to them. The Colorado National Guard generally maintained that the strikers were using exploding bullets. Fire begins to really rage, and it's that fire that draws out the oxygen from one large cellar. That's the cellar that would go on to be known as the black hole of Ludlow. This is the cellar in which several women and children were found, most all of them dead.
20: The 11 children and two women were suffocated. Over 75 people were killed both in the massacre that day and then the ensuing violence.
23: With the intensity, the brutality, the misery of the miners' effort at self-determination, to have that turn into an episode of families in tents being treated as military targets, it does get every form of attention from major political figures. It gets attention from national newspapers. It gets attention from the commission appointed by Congress.
28: It's certainly near the top of the list of the bloodiest events in the history of the American labor movement. Before the Coalfield War, Rockefeller just sent a few telegrams, do what you need to do, we're going to beat that union. After Ludlow, when he wakes up and there are people with black armbands marching outside his office, he becomes much more interested in labor policy.
27: Osgood did not show any remorse. He always contended that it was the strikers. They were the ones who caused all of the violence. John D. Rockefeller did show some remorse over the Ludlow massacre. This meant that CF and I broke from Osgood and the other co-operators. That break destroyed. Osgood's power and influence in Colorado. Osgood died in January of nineteen twenty six upstairs in his bedroom at Cleveland Manor. He was almost a forgotten man.
22: industrial policy is that which has constantly in mind the welfare of the employees as well as the making of profit. The day has passed when the conception of industry as chiefly a revenue-producing process can be maintained.
15: John D. Rockefeller, Jr.,
20: Rockefeller engaged in a massive PR campaign to try to turn his image around. He came back to Colorado in 1915 and he visited CF&I and he visited the Southern Colorado coal fields. and there are photographs of him and he's wearing a brand new set of dungaree overalls as if he's a working man. And he talks to the workers and he tells them, together we can improve conditions, we can make things right. And he creates the Employee Representation Plan. This is the first company union in the nation.
26: Rockefeller hired a public relations advisor, Ivy Lee, and he turned to the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, a Canadian named Mackenzie King, future long-term prime minister of Canada, to help him control the damage of the Ludlow Massacre. What Ivy Lee and Mackenzie King urged John D. Rockefeller Jr. to do was to go to Colorado to overcome his social shyness and listen to the workers, listen to their grievances, show that he was responsive to the issues and concerns among the workers. John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Mackenzie King developed what was known as the Rockefeller Plan to allow workers within their companies to have more say over the conditions of the workplace. It was designed to be a substitute for unionization. Rather than have workers flock to an independent union, they allowed workers to form unions within the company that were regulated and critics said not very effective because they were supervised by the same management that had to redress the grievances. But at the same time, it was a step forward in allowing workers to have more say over what was going on in their workplace.
29: The ideas about corporate welfare really become part of the dialogue um, throughout the United States and throughout the world. In the Industrial Bulletin, which is a publication by CFNI that's published after the Ludlow Massacre, there will be a number of articles that are writing about Americanization, and you start seeing this big push by CFNI to Americanize children in the schools and the belief that that from the schools it will then go into the homes. And I think it's Ludlow-related, but I think it's also World War one related Some of the advantages that happen because of this social betterment plan is this push for the American ideal of education. There's field days that will begin, so it's basically the idea of a company picnic. There'll be first aid contests for the men. There'll be running races for the children. For the women, there's a heavyweight contest. The heaviest woman in camp will win her weight in flower most children contest. so whatever woman has the most children will win a pair of shoes for each of the children. Baseball becomes very important in the culture of CF9. Baseball in many ways becomes a symbol of Americanization.
28: There's a lot of YMCAs. The biggest private one in America was in Pueblo, right next to the steel mill and there was a small YMCA building built by the Rockefellers in just about every coal town of any significance.
23: It's amazing to see how many images there are preserved of people who work really hard during their work days, and they are picnicking in landscapes where you can see mountains in the distance. People who are really exuberantly alive People's spirit and persistence has got to be as big a part of the story as their dilemmas and their constraints.
28: The hospital is absolutely a highlight. The medical programs date from the early days of the Sociology Department. Now St. Mary Corwin served people all over the region, and it was really good to have a hospital. But a lot of the people, particularly the people who were injured the worst, had problems with the way the hospital operated. They thought the doctors were just trying to get them out the door, and there were no pensions for people who were too disabled to continue working. The Rockefeller plan goes over really well at the beginning, particularly in the steel mill. The steel workers had no alternative. There was no national union, so getting a company union seemed like a dream. Over time, the workers test its limitations and tend to gravitate towards independent unions, but that's a process that takes 10 to 20 years. The most important improvement to workers' lives at CFNI that's instituted through the Rockefeller plant was shorter hours for the steelworks. They came up with an alternative that meant paying them just a little more for shorter work and productivity went through the roof.
20: Workers now have a bit of a say in labor relations and the organization of the company, and, and a little bit more control over the daily work life. But it's all company driven, and the meetings take place at CFI corporate offices. And so it's a step forward in terms of labor relations. It by no means Ended all of the strife and it by no means improved overnight the working conditions of Colorado coal miners
28: One of the signs that the Rockefeller plan was a serious attempt to make workers Lives better is the fact that they literally wrote down all the words that the workers said in meetings and that is a sign to me that they wanted to be able to consider workers' suggestions seriously. The Rockefeller Plan gave a little bit to the workers initially. For workers who were used to getting very little from their employer, this seemed like a big deal. But as they grew to expect more, they encountered the limits of what management was willing to give them. The best example of this is wage increases. The first version of the Rockefeller Plan says that we cannot talk about wages. In the mining segment of the company, there were strikes in 1921, 1922, 1927, and they were all about wages. And they realized at a certain point that they would never get the wages they thought they deserved as long as they only had the Rockefeller Plan. And that's when they turned to the United Mine
26: Workers of America. In the end, the Rockefeller Plan failed because it simply could not allow the workers to have the level of involvement in managerial decisions that they needed in order to protect their own livelihoods. The Rockefeller Plan, in the end, it was a nice public relations smooth over for the Rockefellers. The Colorado Fuel and Iron Company really began to decline. By the 1920s, coal was competing with alternative energy sources like natural gas. And so the demand for coal simply declined. Railroads declined steadily through the 1920s and 30s. They actually began tearing up track in Colorado.
28: CF&I was not a particularly profitable business during the years that the Rockefellers controlled it. In fact, during the Depression, they were losing money when every other steel company in America was making money. They went bankrupt in the early thirties and reorganized because of this.
29: During World War II, CF and I does an excellent job of supporting their workforce that is um, drafted or is enlisted to go off to war. And they also highlight the contributions that they make to the war effort. If someone is awarded a Purple Heart, a Bronze Star, they'll put them in many publications.
25: Men went to war, women went to work, and that is when women started working more in the steel mill.
29: The United States government at the time had what was called an efficiency medal, and CFNI is awarded a number of times. CFNI is very much an American company, and they really support the needs of the federal government. Always supportive of vets coming home and getting their jobs back.
28: This sold the company at a time it was doing well because he knew that it was only doing well because of inflated government war contracts. He would have the same sorts of problems after the war. He had a buyer in 44, so he just got out.
1: was a very shy man, a bit of a recluse. When he purchased the company in 1945, a lot of people in Pueblo I don't think actually knew that he was the chairman of the board of directors. In the latter part of 1945, CF&I made its first major change, and that was to merge with a company called Wickwire Spencer Steel, based in Buffalo, New York. Charles Allen really focused on diversifying the product base of the company. CF and I acquired other mining interests as well as steel production interests, mainly focused on the eastern part of the country. In the early 1950s, they purchased Roeblings & Sons, the company that built the Brooklyn Bridge, and also did the cables on the Golden Gate Bridge. At the peak of the company in 1953, the company actually had 22,215 people on the entire payroll. This included all of their mining operations, the steelworks, as well as their many subsidiary companies that stretched from Buffalo, New York, all the way to Los Angeles. It was a very prosperous time. There were about 12,000 people actually working at the steel works itself. Schools were built, several subdivisions. There were a number of smaller businesses throughout Pueblo that sprung up in support of what was happening at the mill.
4: There was a little corner grocery store that we all went to and you charged. Remember, I mean, this is the day before credit cards but every month when my parents got paid, I'd be sent down with the cash to go pay the bill. Those people lived well and did well because of the jobs at the mill.
24: You had this huge period of mid-century prosperity in Bessemer, and so you had the last few lots that had been platted by Palmer back in the 1870s and 80s filling up with these mid-century ranches, and they had tile roofs, and they had kind of Spanish mission elements bars and the churches, they were community centers. They would unified neighborhoods, they unified people, all these ethnic groups, they all cut each other some slack because they realized that they were all working in the same difficult working conditions.
4: The Catholic Church was a big enough influence in Pueblo that on the south side, in the grove, there were four Catholic churches on almost contiguous corners. Bojan was a name for Eastern Europeans, There were a huge number. They all came from different provinces within Yugoslavia, Poland, Italy. And they almost all immediately went to work in the mines or the mills. And then some of them would save money, buy a house. These were very modest neighborhoods. I don't think most of the houses were more than 800, 900 square feet. There was the general store, which my grandmother would refer to sometimes as the company store. This was a company town, and your livelihood depended on it.
1: Beginning in the 1960s, CFNI experienced a lot of foreign competition, and that really hurt a lot of CFNI's profits. The Crane Corporation was a global corporation, and in the summer of 1969, it had acquired 82% of CFNI's stock, making them now the owner of CFNI. In the early 1970s, Pueblo started building the Comanche Power Plant, and this was to provide electricity, which was then used specifically for the electric arc furnace. This was a much more rapid and precise method of making steel. The electric furnace relied on scrap metal recycling rather than on raw products.
25: There were a number of reasons for the decline of CFNI. Certainly, competition from foreign steel was one major factor. There were environmental regulations that were coming into play in the 1970s, air quality regulations, water quality regulations. It made it more expensive to manufacture steel in the United States. The success of a steel mill is very much about supply and demand. Whenever there's a bad economy, the steel mill is going to suffer.
18: In 1982, sales dropped from about $730 million to about $360 million. We tried to do everything we could do to cut costs. We froze wages. Also, at that time, we started getting hit with the imports. The demand just dropped. In 1974, the steel industry employed over 500,000 people. In 1992, the steel industry employed less than 200,000 people.
1: The last coal mine closed in 1983 and the last iron ore mine owned by the company closed in 1986.
18: In that process, we laid off in excess of 3,000 people which was a gut-wrenching thing from a lot of standpoints. CFNI was always an independent company. We had our own board, and we had our own shareholders. In 87, the board agreed to an employee stock option plan, and we gave the employees 35% of the common stock of the company It would have worked if the demand would have increased, like we had actually projected. But as it turned out, it didn't. So November of 90, we filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. In 1993, Oregon Steel decided that they would buy the assets. Through all of this, the company never shut down, never lost a day of operation.
25: We went into contract negotiations with the Oregon Steel. They turned sour real quick. And my thoughts were, at that time, in 1997, I'd had three years in the mill. I'll be going back to work for three weeks or whatever. But it lasted, it lasted seven years before we went under contract. And during that time, I was locked out from the mill for five years.
23: When the strike happened, Not in my wildest dreams would I think that that would last seven years.
18: If it wasn't for the Union, I don't know what we'd be doing, because the Union has saved us, has created jobs for us, has protected our jobs. We could no longer have the resources
25: to make steel from raw materials, so we had to make steel from scrap, this is what they call a mini-mill, scrap iron.
11: But I remember going to the machine shop and have to make spare parts because they wouldn't buy parts to keep compressors and things going, and we made our own parts. The employees kept that company going.
22: Evraz first bought the Pueblo plant as part of Oregon Steel in 2006. We have two facilities in Russia, one here in Pueblo, and we make more rail than any other steel maker in the entire world. That gave us a global expertise. You can't get rid of over a hundred years of history. Probably most of the people in Pueblo still call it CFNI, maybe some call it Rocky Mountain Steel, some call it Evraz. Every time I look at those pictures, I think of how fortunate we are to be working today and not be working 60 or 80 years ago. It absolutely has changed throughout the years. Today, we have a fairly automated process. Most of the dangerous jobs, the heavy lifting has been taken over by either cranes or other equipment. Today, we start out with scrap steel. We are a 100% recycling operation. We're Colorado's largest recycler by volume. We'll bring in and melt down about 1.2 million tons of steel annually. We operate an electric arc furnace, and we will take it from solid cold scrap to 3,000 degree liquid steel in about 34 minutes. We can fit about 130 automobiles in there. I like to say it can clear a Walmart parking lot faster than a blue light special at Kmart. Everything is big. What we do here is hot rolling. It means that all of our products are made through reduction. Our rolling temperatures are all pretty close to 2000 degrees. Our largest mill here locally is our rail mill. The second largest product by volume that we make is a wire rod and rebar. Wire rod will also get drawn down into fine wire to get stranded into wire rope for anything from cranes to suspension bridges. The last product that we make here is seamless pipe. That's used for casing oil and gas wells. We are Colorado's largest electricity user by multiples. That's what brought Excel down into Pueblo. Comanche Power Plant was constructed when we started the upgrade to electric furnace in the early 70s. C.F. and I was originally founded to lay rail to connect the country and still today we're doing the same thing, laying new rail lines, connecting commerce, producing rebar that is fueling the expansion of our infrastructure, our highways, our buildings. Even today, 140 years later, this is still the mill that builds the West.
7: We would melt steel, but it was a
22: melting pot for the whole community every type of nationality working in the mill.
11: I remember my first day, one of the old timers came up to me and says, don't worry, don't worry. In two hours, we're all going to be the same color.
18: I started in the mill in 1953 out of high school. You don't really look at danger per se, you're looking at that weekly paycheck. It was vacations, it was my son's going to college.
22: I'm actually a fourth
8: generation steelworker. worker. The process out there is just unreal. How we take a piece of metal and turn it into the finished product.
25: CFNI is still here after 140 years. I work 12-hour shifts. I work seven days out of every 14, and you become a family out there. Many people think of CFNI as just a Pueblo thing or Southern Colorado thing, but it's a United States thing. I'm very proud to be a steelworker.
29: One of the great parts about Southern Colorado is that you can still go today and drive through the canyons and you'll see these old coke ovens and you'll see remnants of these company towns.
24: What's left of Bessemer and what's left of the steel mill is a part of Colorado and American history that you really can't experience in very many places. The Industrial Revolution and the buildings and the size and the scale that we still have It's one of the most historically significant sites in Colorado, if not the nation. You can still experience living historic places run by the descendants of original owners. You could still sit in the same stools that the steel mill workers sat on throughout the 20s and 30s and 40s.
28: When you're closer to the steel mill, you can get a feeling for what it was like if you worked there on a hourly job in 1915 because the houses are often that old. The further you move away, you can figure out which ones are the ones that were owned by middle management. And as you get up towards Opriendo, you can see the giant houses that were owned by the major management.
18: Back in the 70s, CF and I had probably in the neighborhood a 10% of the workforce and 25% of the payroll in Pueblo. Leaders at that time, they formed what is now Pueblo Economic Development Corporation. They developed an industrial park at the airport and they went out and got manufacturing facilities of different kinds to come in.
0: This is the manufacturing center of the Rockies. We've tried to keep the generational culture in manufacturing because we think it's important based on our history. Their grandfather might have worked in the mill, their father might have worked in the mill, but the son is over at Vestas, the largest wind tower manufacturing plant in the world. He's working at train corporation making commercial water chillers, very united technology aerospace, making carbon brakes. The thing that I find interesting about
25: this steel mill is that it has operated continuously since 1880. It's one of the few places in the country where steel manufacturing has managed to continue to operate despite the ups and downs of the the steel industry in America.
23: The legacy of CFNI is all around us. It is a central symbol of what happened for this region. How do you take a stance that allows you to be rightly and appropriately dazzled by what enterprising people achieved? And also pay attention to the injuries, the burdens, the prices paid to reach that achievement. But if you're only looking at the sorrows and the burdens, I think you're doing a disservice to the workers and their families who did have resilience and adaptation in their skill set as well. Look at all the dimensions of the CFNI story. We are here living as we do now because of our predecessors. CFNI makes it possible for people that are working class to
29: almost start living a middle-class lifestyle. They came and they worked in terrible working conditions, and their children might work in terrible working conditions, but their grandchildren are teachers and doctors and lawyers and CEOs. It's the perfect American story.
26: The immigrants who worked in the foundries and the coal mines and who risked their lives and their livelihoods working dangerous jobs to turn the United States into an industrial power. The Colorado Fuel and Iron Company and the men and women of steel the company produced. These are the people who build America.
22: During this time of uncertainty and stress, it's easy to let yourself be overcome with emotions. That's why it's vital to take care of your mental health. So here are just a few mental health tips to help you keep calm and Denver on.
15: Calling people, texting people to, to reduce that sense of being isolated. The more that we can connect with other people and show kindness to other people, I think that also is something that's good for all of us. You know, we can't go to the gym anymore, but we can walk. We can do exercises in our home. Just, just really practicing good self-care. I think it's good to take a, a break from the news. I think everyone else is obsessed with it and just checking because it's changing so fast. We want to check it, but try to give oneself a break from that. It's really trying to be present in your life. So, for example, if you're Having dinner at home, don't be watching the news at the same time, just have dinner. If you're walking, during that walk, notice your footsteps, notice what you're hearing, and it's a way to allow your brain to have a little bit of a rest. Many health professionals are now going to remote therapy, so it may be on the phone, Um, But that's really for everybody's safety, but it can still be helpful. Rather than focusing on what you can't do, the fears you have, focus on the things that you do have. There are many, many people working very hard, you know, to get us all through this, and that ultimately we will get through this.
10: kind of surreal, you know, when you grow up in a city and you look up and you're directly responsible for maintaining the city you live in. You know, I look forward to being able to drive and operate the toys that we play with as kids. You're making this place better for your kids, for parents, for your elders.
6: Explore careers at the City and County of Denver, where Denver works.
11: COVID-19 has impacted the way we do a lot of things, including how the City of Denver protects and shelters its most vulnerable residents. Denver's Department of Housing Stability, or HOST, responded to this pandemic by leveraging partnerships with service providers to offer around-the-clock shelter at existing facilities, new auxiliary shelters, and hotel rooms. Across these facilities, we are offering shelter, medical support, and other services to more than 2,200 men and women each night. Here's what you need to know about how Host is working to change the system and outcomes for people experiencing homelessness.
30: I would ask you to reframe how you think about the issue of homelessness. Homelessness is a context that people are living in. It is not who a person is. Hi, I'm Britta Fisher, and I'm the Executive Director of the Department of Housing Stability for the City and County of Denver. So here in the City and County of Denver, we look at housing across a whole continuum, from people experiencing homelessness to people at about the median income or the middle point of incomes in our community. More than 100,000 of our households that are under the median income are struggling with their housing costs. They're feeling cost burdened. That means they're spending more than 30 percent of their income on housing. What we also see is that about 46,000 plus households are spending more than half their income on housing. And when you're cost burdened or severely housing cost burdened it's hard to afford other necessities. Things like medicine and food and transportation. And so we know that here in Denver, we want people to be able to afford and have a healthy and successful and connected life across our housing and income continuum.
11: You know, I just believe every single person in Denver deserves to be healthy, housed, and connected. And that's why we created this office. You know, there is no bigger priority for me as mayor,